You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I am pleased to introduce you to Joy Jordan-Lake. Joy's varied professional experience has included working as a college professor, an author, journalist, waitress, director of a program for homeless families, university chaplain, horseback riding instructor, freelance photographer, and the job title that remains her personal favorite, head sailing instructor. Wow, that is a varied background. She joins me today to talk about her latest novel, A Bend of Light. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Joy. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. This is fun. Joy, I've got so many questions for you, but the first I have to ask is, um, where does your story as an author begin? You know, I very much in elementary school, I loved the outdoors as a kid and I was also sick a lot. So I spent a lot of time kind of either in bed reading or up in a tree reading or in somebody's backyard reading. Our moms would, you know, kick us out of the house, go be outdoors. And so we'd go either go read somewhere or we would go act out a book we were reading, Nancy Drew or, you know, some classic or whatever. So, um, and there was this little library across the street from me, this little church library. And this, the librarian was this little lady who was adorable and nobody oversaw what she put in that library. So she had like the complete works of the Bronte sisters and all of Charles Dickens and on and on and on. And so I would go over there and just check out books, you know, and nobody was ever there. I would just run across barefoot, check out books and bring them back. And um, so I, I had this dream of wanting to be a writer and um, it was my fifth grade teacher. I love elementary school teachers. I think they're just the most influential. I'm a part-time college professor, but I think elementary school teachers are really the ones who rock the world. Um, but she, I never told anybody I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And she left this article one day on my desk and she'd scribbled herself. This is for you one day when you grow up to become an author. And I just, wow. I was just bowled over by that. And um, she actually quietly did that for a lot of different people in a lot of different areas I've learned since. But anyway, I guess she's kind of marks in my head, or at least that that little library running across the street to it, those moments. Well, you know, you know, most most authors are avid readers or were avid readers as as kids from a very young age. And that's where the inspiration, a lot of the inspiration comes from. But I'm curious, what were you turning into this teacher who who was convinced that you were going to become a writer? You know, good question. I know we read a lot in her class and she read to us a lot, you know, in fifth grade, you're kind of too old to be read to, but we were just all enchanted by her. She was an older woman. She wasn't like cool. She was already 
quite old at that point. She would read to us after lunch. So, and then I remember we did a lot of creative writing. I don't know why she thought that or what, what I had written that led her to believe that, but she was just one of those incredibly insightful people. So I must've, she must've seen enough hints or something that she felt yeah. like she needed to encourage me. Yeah. there It's invaluable to have that kind of encouragement, you know, from such a young age, because it really does help you really think that, Hey, maybe I could do this. But when, when did you actually start, you know, call yourself a writer? Well, let's see. I, um, I was an English major in college, which of course is the road to fame and fortune as we all know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right? And so no surprise that after that, I was a Pizza Hut waitress. And you know, so I somehow missed the memo that you really, you know, you really should go to go to med school or become a real estate developer or something. Um, but I, I guess I did just some, a little bit of journalism in college for the paper and loved that. And I was a freelance journalist for a while and, and worked for a newspaper for a while. So in all those ways, you know, I guess sort of thought of myself or did think of myself as a writer, but really wanted to write books, wanted to write fiction. And I was one of those people who just kind of walked around saying, I'm going to write fiction someday and just, you know, bills have to be paid and, and they're always fun people to hang out with and movies to watch and books to read. And, um, so I, you know, there comes a point, I guess, um, I will, I know at one point, the only writer's conference I went to, I guess, in my early twenties, I finally, um, paid to go to this writer's conference in England and probably went there for free on, you know, airline points. I think my husband and I had about 50 cents in the bank account. So I'm, I'm not sure how we got there, but we kind of backpacked around. But I remember at that point too, thinking it's time to fish or cut bait, as we say in the South, you know, it's, it's, um it's not, if I'm going to have this dream, I need to do something about it. So I um, started working on a collection of short stories, which of course, I, hello, I knew nothing about marketing collections of short stories by un unknown authors do not sell, but I, I did get it published and it, um, that was fun. But I think maybe that was another thing for, to, for a very frugal person to be willing to pay to go to England for this writer's conference. That was kind of another turning point where like, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to put some time into and a little self-discipline for a change into yeah. this dream. Well, there's that making that investment in yourself, right? That's that's important. So that's a big that's a big milestone that should not be understated. But Absolutely. what was it about the the conference? You know, what what was your main takeaways from attending that that first conference? You know, it was um, a a guy named Larry Wywoody, uh was kind of the writer in residence for that conference, and he. I remember he, we all read something we had brought and we had turned it in early, I guess. And then we read it aloud to the class and people made comments and all. And, and I think I went maybe last, but my memory was he, people had lots of very kind, encouraging comments to make. And he just kept hammering at it. And finally, and, and, and I noticed two things. One is I can be really thin skinned in some areas of my life, but in that area in writing, I'm not, I really want to know how to make it better. You know, it's like having a good coach, like bring it on, tell me how to be better. So I noticed that about myself, even in the moment, like, okay, I want to know this and I'm not being thin skinned. This is good. Um, but I also noticed then a couple of other students or workshop participants spoke up and said, why are you being so hard on her? And um, so much harder than the rest of us. And uh, and he kind of rocked back in his chair and he said, well, like, you know, like this was a stupid question. He said, because I appreciate what she's done. 
And, you know, and I, and it was really oddly uh, one of the most affirming moments I've had. And he even took me aside later and said, I hope I didn't beat up on you too badly, but I really think this has potential. And that piece that I had read ended up becoming one of the short stories in my first book. And, um, but that was a, you know, oddly a very affirming moment when he just wouldn't leave me alone. He just kept after me. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, 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 um, it's a compliment really, um, spending that much time and attention on you, but, you know, being thin-skinned and being an author do not go hand in hand. Uh, <laughs> oh, isn't that the truth? Oh my gosh. You know, you have to, you make yourself so vulnerable in the writing process, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you know, that you, you have to be vulnerable about it because you put your soul on every page and, um, yeah, there's going to be critics. Your editors are going to, you know, hammer you a little bit, um, right. to, to make, to make you a better, a better writer. And then of course, critics and fans and readers, you know, they're all going to have something to say on Goodreads or Amazon or wherever people go and do their reviews. It's, uh, you can't be, you can't be, um, yeah, I like to say you can't be thin skinned and you can't be too humble either, because at some point you have to promote the hell out of something. And, you know, you, you wrote it for a reason. You right. feel it's good enough. So. Right. Right. It's, it's such an interesting dance. I I'm teaching a creative writing class at Belmont University right now and um I was just talking about that yesterday with my students sort of you I think at least in my experience most writers are not very egotistical in fact they tend to skew a little more insecure and quiet and you know more the reader type um but you do you have to have some kind of steely sense inside of you of there's something here it may not be good enough yet but but I have what it takes to make it better. If not wonderful, at least I can stick with it and make it better. There's got to be some kind of very stubborn. Uh, my dad, I, I think my biggest flaw as a child growing up, my dad used to get so frustrated with me and say, you are so stubborn. And he just, and he would, and I remember one day shaking his head and saying, maybe all this stubbornness will come in handy someday when you're grown up. But, you know, I think he was just despairing of me as a child. But but in fact, certainly as a writer, you know, even some days when I'm really lacking self-confidence, that stubbornness will sometimes be the thing that gets me through. It's like, I'm, I'm not giving up on this thing. I'm, you know, I'm going to keep at it until it's decent. So yeah, well, that and, you know, you spend 75, 80,000 words, right, for an average novel, um, usually handed a lot more until the other people who know more of what what readers want you know decide to cut some out but you know you have to you have to stand behind it though at some point you know and you're right i mean we are authors are you know maybe a little bit more introverted at times um definitely all suffer from imposter syndrome i don't care who you are you suffer from imposter syndrome um and you got to get over it because you and you have to believe in it so much because you know you want somebody more than your friends or family to buy the right so exactly that's right the three books that you fear are going to be the three books that sell (laughs) you uh you mentioned being sick as a a kid um what 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 was that all about what was um you know what 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 got you ill you know i i think it was just i mean it was just all ear nose throat stuff allergies whatever who knows you know i loved animals i was always always had cats and dogs and you know that it was just all that kind of strep throat constantly. And the truth is, I don't know if I've ever admitted this to my dear mother, but the truth is it didn't take much for me to want to stay home because I knew I could just read all day and then catch up later, you know, on school. So 
the slightest little tickle of the throat or the slightest, I, I genuinely had a lot of ear aches, but you know, it didn't take much for me to go, Oh, I think, you know, golly mom, I think yeah. I'm just miserable. So, so some of it was genuine and some of it was, why would you not want to just stay home and read? You know? Right. Right. So. There it is. Blaming reading again. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, after, after that conference and you're putting that um, book of uh, short stories together, which of course, you know, made you seven figures. Um, how did you, how did you go about finding an agent and getting it published? You know, oh gosh, I, yeah, I love that. And Lamont, I'm just rereading bird by bird for the sake of my students. They're reading it right now. And I'm just dying laughing over Anne Lamont's advice about, you know, she gives all this deep, you know, this profound advice about writing and the writing life. And then talks about her students saying, but how do I get an agent? You know, all that kind of jump. I jumped the gun just like that way too soon. I literally thought, um, I guess I had had zero books published at this point. I'd done all these short stories, but they weren't published except in like random magazines, but not together in a book. And I had this great idea. I was supposed to be working on my PhD at Tufts University in Boston. And I ran across this really interesting stuff in the 19th century connections between Boston and Charleston, South Carolina. And I was much more interested in that and writing a novel about that than I was working on my dissertation. So I decided I had spring break and I had, I figured I had about three months before my dissertation advisor noticed that I was kind of gone AWOL and wasn't working on my dissertation. So I gave myself three months, mapped it out. How many pages would I need to write a day? And now I'd never written a novel in my life, only short stories at that point, why I thought I could write a novel in three months. And, and so I had it mapped out, went to Charles, you know, had a plan to go to Charleston with my, my husband and my then baby, I think she was nine months at the time and do all the research I needed to do, come back, write this novel. And, um, oh, and then for an agent, my, um, husband went to Harvard and was roommates with a guy who was working in New York, who had been to a cocktail party with one of the top agents in New York Wow! and worked for Sterling Lord Literistic. So I thought in my very naive writer brain, I thought, oh my gosh, that's perfect. Okay. My husband's <laughs> roommate went to a cocktail party where he met this guy named Peter Matson, And I bet the famous Peter Matson would love to take on an unknown writer who has just pounded out a novel in three months. And so, you know, I, the stupid things you do. Right. And um, sure enough, sent it to him. He actually, I think wrote a very nice note back, a personal note, but like, thank you very much, but no. And, and I proceeded to send it out literally so many times I had this long, you know, spreadsheet or a list of, it felt like every agent in New York I had sent it to in my naive way and actually got a rejection letter from an agent I never sent to. <laughs> That's what that was about, right? I don't know if it's like a proactive, you know, just, just in case. They just you know. wanted to build up your ego or or make sure that you, you know you didn't, you know, get too too big in your big for your britches, right? You know. Right. Proactively oh, sending you rejection letters. Exactly, exactly. Since everyone else in New York has gotten one, I thought I'd better send you, you know, send you ones before you send me your manuscript. Let me just go ahead and reject you ahead of time. I mean, it was awful. So I just, you know, I can't, again, the stubbornness, um, less than the ego, but certainly the stubbornness. I just kept working at it and learning the ones who did take the time to write anything personal, took that very seriously and worked on stuff and um went away and, and wrote other books, got this collection of short stories published and did other things. And it was actually many years later, had a, a friend of mine was an agent for a while, but 
he was actually a better editor than agent. He went back to editing. And anyway, that finally, um, finally ended up with Elizabeth Weed at the book group. But she wasn't my first agent, but she is dynamite. She is just, she and three friends of hers run the book group together and they're just, you know, they're hitting it out of the park. So she's been fabulous to work with. But I, again, I try to tell people who are just getting started, like it, it's okay if you don't have your dream agent right out of the shoot, yeah. you know, it's okay. And that's where that thin, thin skin will come to haunt you, right? If you, know, cause you can, you, you know, many people can just, and, and I'm one of them wallpaper their, you know, wall with rejection letters from agencies, oh, yeah. many totally. of which do not take the time to write a very personal note for you. Right. So you have no idea. Are they just yeah. too full and too busy, but, or did they, right. Right. Did some college intern read it and reject it? Did they even see it? Who knows? Right. 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 Well, what can you tell us about a bend of light? Well, it's set in um, a coastal Maine village in 1950. I really wanted that kind of closed feeling of, um, you know, like you get from a Louise Penny novel of just, you know, we have just these characters here and someone someone did it. Um, but I really love that more than the who done it, I love the the why done it, you know, the psychology behind what makes people tick, what makes people want to get revenge or hold a grudge or hate or all those kind of things. Um, so and I was I was intrigued by 1950. There's so many fabulous World War II novels right now, just so many. But I was kind of intrigued by, first of all, I didn't want to set it in an era where you could just do a DNA test or you could yeah. search there. There's one character who's been missing for years and I didn't want to, anybody to be able to just do an internet search and things like that. I wanted to get away from that and do more of kind of the classic golden era mystery. Um, and uh, and I was, I was intrigued with kind of that post-war sense of you have, on the one hand, you have the sense of jubilation that the war is over. And on the other hand, you have this, um, sort of impending sense of doom about the Cold War. And you have um, also just the, you know, the culture has shifted so fast. And you have women who've, some of them really loved what they were getting to do during the war. Suddenly um, they've lost their jobs or they've lost their role or whatever. Things have shifted with roles in terms of gender. You've got all kinds of um, things going on racially. And we think of the 60s has been when when everything kind of broke loose. and. Um, but really, you know, you've got it right there in the 50s. It's just starting to kind of come to the surface. So I was just, I was just intrigued by that, those kind of the social currents that are going on. And, and again, that sort of sense of um, tension, right? We all know that you need tension in the stories and you've got, um, so the main character is someone who was a, she was a photographic interpreter during World War II, which was a, a role I didn't even know anything about till I started researching and was fascinated that, these people would have to take pictures from the reconnaissance airplanes that would fly over enemy territory. And then they would um, not only have to analyze what they were seeing, but they would have to compare it sort of day to day or week to week. So that if suddenly there are a bunch of trees in a picture that weren't there yesterday, you know, obviously a forest didn't grow up overnight. So they knew that somehow this was um, this was camouflage and something was being built there. And, you know, it just, to me, it was just fascinating. Um, but that was her job during the war and she's uh, lost her job with the returning GIs. And so she's trying to sort of remake it, remake her life back in the little town where she grew up. 
and uh, she's a photographer. So um, anyway, I just, they're, they're a lot of fun. Have you, have you spent much time in Maine? I know you're not, I, you know, I haven't. I'm uh, we, we used to go to Cape Cod every summer, um, okay. we, but we never made it so far to Maine. I think just the drive was just, uh, <laughs> it just, it is that much farther, right? Uh, sure. you know, to, uh, to get to, but no, it's on our bucket list. Been to Vermont, but not, uh, okay. not so much Maine. Okay. Well, you'll have to add it. I just, I, when we lived in, um, in Boston, we would go up to kind of the Southern coast of Maine whenever we could, it was just about an hour and a half. So you could even do a day trip. And back yeah. when we had the 50 cents in our bank account, you know, you could just do a day trip, not even have to spend the night. And, um, so I, I love that whole Kennebunkport area, York. And, um, so that this little town, it's a fictional town that I created Pelican Cove, but anybody who's ever been to Kennebunkport would recognize it immediately as, um, set up like, like Kennebunkport. And, um, and then just, you know, and some of the, some of the um, landmarks are similar, but um, anyway, that was fun to create. In fact, the publisher included a beautiful map of the, of the village. So that's the first novel I've written with a map in it. Ooh, I'm very excited. <laughs> that, that, that means, that means there are locations of interest. That's right. Absolutely. In addition to people of interest. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, it's also an interesting time period to write about too, because it's, you know, it's post-war um, yeah, there's, there's, you know, still, you know, a lot of racial inequalities in, in America during that time, but, but there's also like this sense of hope, you know, um, you know, among, you know, American people, like the economy starts doing well. Um, but you know, it sounds like not everything goes well in your story that there's some kind of a, right. Maybe, maybe some, right. Kind of, and you're some right kind of bad stuff happens. <laughs> right, right. Right. And some good stuff too. But, um, yeah, there, I, there are a lot of funny moments, I hope, for the reader. I Again, I love that about Louise Penny's novels. I'm a big fan of hers, where you've got a lot of lighthearted moments in the midst of, you know, trying to track down some pretty dark stuff. But um, but yeah, that I, I think there again, I was intrigued with, I didn't realize there were 80,000 soldiers missing in action after World War II. So you've got that. So one of the, one of the, or several of the characters are are missing one of these people who grew up in the town who's been very close to them and wondering if he's still alive. So that's part of the early, um, early part of the the novel looking for him. And um, so there's that, you know, the people who whose lives didn't just get back to, oh good, you know, and and you've got, as you say, you've got a lot of racial inequality. Um, one of the characters is from Jamaica. I didn't realize that a number of people from the Caribbean came up during World War II to work in New England and upstate New York on farms. So, yeah. so many of the men had gone to war. And um, so anyway, things like that. And, um, and you know, any village, I grew up in a small town and, um, you know, any village or small town can be very warm and wonderful and welcoming. And then they can also, I know the one I grew up in, can have these very dark currents, you know, and very, things happening, um, that are pretty scary behind yeah. the scenes. So. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like an intriguing read. I know we can't talk too, too much about it because we don't want to give anything away or you don't want to give anything away. <laughs> um, but I want to continue our conversation, getting to know you a little bit more. And one way I do that is through a series of questions, starting with some around pop culture. So I'm curious, Joy, uh, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite TV shows? Ah, uh, let's see. Growing up. Oh, Let's see, Gilligan's Island. This is going to be very embarrassing because they're none of them are going to be like, you know, things that people of taste would have watched. I guess Gilligan's Island and you know, Gilligan's Island comes up 
does a it a lot on this program absolutely <laughs> okay, absolutely yes All right. ask um gilligan uh favorite who do you what character do you identify most with on gilligan's island <laughs> i think probably marianne oh ginger i'm thinking not maybe ginger because she she always seemed like you know she always seemed like the smart one that wasn't the movie star that was sort of underrated. Oh, I agree. I between uh, a lot of men are asked, Ginger or Marianne. I was always Team Marianne. Always. Oh, good for you. Always like Marianne. Yes. No. I'm. You know, <laughs> even though she didn't have blonde hair. Um. No. She. Uh. She was my favorite. I. I say for myself. Um. I'm either Thurston Howell the third. Oh, that's great. Because uh, uh, he always slept with a teddy bear. And I did for a very long time after childhood. That. He had his little tiny, he always called his wife Lovey. Um, to the point where I don't even know what Mrs. Howell's name is. She's just always hey, Lovey. Point. She was Lovey. I had forgotten that about his teddy bear. You know, that, that sweet, my middle child was kind of a Thurston Howard, or it's still is, don't tell him I said so, but he's just one of those kids that always was the person who was invited to the you know, brunch at the toniest country club in town. We like, we never knew how, like, why is it always you? You know, what is it about the rest of us that are, you know? And, uh, and he always, even as a kid, he was a rough, tough, like athlete and, you know, and yet he had this sense of like, like he appreciated things like crystal and sterling silver. And I mean, things like that, or how something should look or, it's like, what is that about? So yeah, he had what we would tease him about being the Thurston Howell and he slept with a teddy bear until he was about, I don't know, 12. Okay. And um, so there you go. There, there you it go. is. There it is. So in addition <laughs> to Gilligan's Island, what else you got? Oh, let's see. Um, loved Get Smart. Um, I still, I still sometimes think of those steel doors kind of you know, those people who have personalities where they just choose not to think about something like, and I still picture in my mind, like, you know, that steel door coming down or, okay, I guess we're not going to talk about that. And, um, what else do I even remember? I, I loved, um, wonderful world of Disney, mm -hmm. just loved it, loved it. But I grew up in small town and was expected to go to church on Sunday nights. And that was always a bone of contention with my parents because I always wanted to stay home and watch Wonderful World of Disney. So right. this was, you know, this was always something to to be feeling rebellious about, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. They, except, unless there was an old fashioned ice cream churn at the church, in which case that was, you know, then then I could be lured to church. <laughs> ice cream beats uh, Mickey Mouse. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, how about musical artists? Who were you listening to growing up? Oh, gosh, I loved, you know, the Bee Gees and had a huge crush on Bobby Sherman, not for his music, but because he was cute. And um, again, nothing sophisticated, you yeah. know, nothing, nothing cool. Um, just loved the kind of loved. Oh, I loved Earth, Wind and Fire. I guess that's kind of more cool, isn't it? Sure. Um, yeah, Doobie Brothers. My brother and I went in together and our first record we bought together was a Doobie Brothers album. We were very proud of that. Oh, and Peter Frampton. Oh, he lived boy. here, actually not far from where I do in Brentwood, Tennessee. And um, he I bet, had a big crush on Peter Frampton. You know, had that great hair. Oh, he had great. He doesn't have it anymore. He does but... not. I was so disillusioned when I saw him 
come out on stage the other day. I was just a few rows back and it yeah. was like, Oh, Peter. <laughs> yeah. I saw him. He came to my town maybe about 10 years ago. Um, and he sounded amazing. I mean, a yes. great, great show. I know he's got some health issues now or he's, he's retiring or something to do with his hands or some muscular oh, thing or something. That's what I, that's what I heard. He was on Howard Stern, uh, like a couple of years ago talking about it. Uh, oh, but he used to live in, um, he used to live near my, one of my former bosses in, uh, in Ohio. Um, oh, no kidding. Outside of Cincinnati. Yeah. 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 He was a Cincinnati guy for a bit. Um, wow. yeah, I love, uh, I love Peter Frampton. Love the doobies. Um, Bee Gees too. Um, <laughs> love the Bee Gees. Yeah, my wife and I got into an argument actually recently. She thought Andy Gibb was one of the Bee Gees. And I said, no, he was not. And she's like, he's, but he's a Gib. I said, yes, he's a Gib. He is one of the brothers Gib, but he was never in the Bee Gees. Um, and I made her go on uh, Wikipedia to look it up. So, okay. And yeah. were you right? Oh, I was right. Okay. Well, I hate not to side with another woman, but I was kind of leaning toward, you were probably right on that one. Yeah, so. well, it was Maurice, right? Barry right. and, oh God, who was the third? Um, Maurice, Barry, not Andy. I know it's not Andy. That's all we know. Shit, I hope it's not Andy. Um, can't go wrong with the Bee Gees, though. Love it. Uh, who do you like now? Do you listen to anybody now? Any Anything more contemporary? Well, you know, I, yeah, let's hope my face has been a little bit updated. It's I hesitate to name too many people because in Nashville, you know, some, like you've just heard. So one thing I love about living here, I have to say, is you often hear the backstory to songs. Um, what's the... Um, God bless the broken road. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Rat, Rascal Flatts. Yeah, yeah. Well, the guy who wrote that, or one of the one of the guys who wrote that, is a uh, kind of friend loosely, you know, acquaintance slash friend. Um, his wife does amazing things here in town, and um, he's super super talented guy. But um, I was in a group socially one time where he was telling the story of he was at at a bar hanging out and. Um, with a couple of other guys and one of them asked the other one about, you know, how's life treating you? He, he really struggled with alcoholism. And he said, you know, I just really, yeah, I'm, you know, better. I'm on the wagon. I've, you know, that marriage completely dissolved and crashed and burned. It was awful. And, you know, but I'm getting married again and it's beautiful and kind of started my life over and learned a lot from everything I did wrong and all the people I hurt. And all I can tell you is, you know, God bless the broken road. And, and the other two guys were songwriters and said, they said there was just silence for a minute. And they both said, can we use that? <laughs> so, turn it into a song. And, you know, you hear these just great stories of, yeah. of where the stories came from. So I love, um, I let, you know, what I really love are, are like the, um, what do you, what do we call them? Kind of beach country, island country, I guess yeah. is the name. Yeah. So, and I love um, like Bob Marley and, mm. So I always, I always uh, laugh at my kind of very odd eclectic taste in music because I, I um, and I love anybody who's fun in person, like a Garth Brooks or Trisha yeah. Yearwood. They're just they're super humble um, when you hear them speak in person and funny, and so that always makes me like someone's music. Yeah, better. yeah, they, they did a great show um, during the pandemic. Um, it was just basically the two of them acoustically in his studio home studio just at their home studio like just taking requests it was really cool like it was really neat they they uh, are really genuinely neat people like if you garth brooks 
I guess Trisha Yearwood graduated from Belmont. So she comes back a good bit to do things. And, and he's done a number of things just with, I mean, just with students kind of answering their questions and trying to be encouraging. And, yeah. and you hear from people who are on their crews, you know, like traveling on their crews, roadies, is that what they're called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are genuinely kind people, yeah. you know, which is, which is just cool to hear because people at that level, you know, I'm sure get exhausted and impatient and, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Island country, my wife and I just saw Kenny Chesney a couple of weeks ago. Oh, fun! Uh, that was a great, oh, it's a fantastic show. Fantastic show. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, let's talk about your inner child. Um, do you feel like you have an inner child? And if so, how do you feed your inner child? Oh, absolutely. Inner child. And I, I think sort of writers, I don't know, maybe sometimes you talk to writers who don't, but I would think you'd almost have to, because so much of you know, what Flannery O'Connor says about anyone who survived childhood has enough material to write for the rest of your life. And you really do, you know, um, I guess I feel like I'm more in touch with my inner child than I have been in earlier times in my life when I was trying to do other things. Cause I, now I'm doing the things that I always wanted to do when I was a kid, I wanted to write and I wanted to have time to be in nature. And I wanted, um, you know, to have time to prioritize people. And, and I talk like I'm not stressed out right now, which of course I am right before a book launch, but, but I do, I guess I do feel more like, um, more like I'm appreciating the things that, um, you know, that I loved and, and the things that I didn't want to have anything to do with, you know, the, the things I learned as a kid about myself, but about the world. So, yeah. 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 Um, maybe on related lines, in what ways do you look um, towards writing as a form of therapy? Oh, totally. For me, it is. My first novel is one called Blue Hole Back Home. And it was, I think, partly from living in New England um, and going to graduate school at Tufts. I would talk about the South, like it was all this. And none of my other colleagues in grad school were from the South. And I would talk about it like it was this land of just, you know, beauty and racial harmony and everyone was holding hands singing we are the world and eating good barbecue and, you know, great music. And, uh, and, and they all had this sort of TV Hollywood, you know, circa 1950 view of, of the South that it was all sort of, or worse, you know, it was all Bull O'Connor and it was all, you know, really, really scary fire hoses and German shepherds. And um, so clearly, um, you know, their view needed updated and my view needed complexified more. But um, while I was there, I remember one time we were talking about things from our past and I mentioned, kind of alluded that to this time in my life when I'd been out swimming with my parents and coming back from a swimming hole and I was in the back of the car and there was this roadblock and, and all these guys in white hoods and sheets walk out and um, they tapped on the, the driver's side window with the butt of a rifle and made my dad roll it down and stuck the rifle inside the car where I was sitting in the back seat and my mom was in the passenger seat and held out a Kentucky fried chicken bucket and said, would you like to donate? And, and, you know, I, I guess it wasn't like that was usual in my town, yeah. but the fact that I'm of a certain age that not, not incredibly ancient, um, 
to have run in a run in with a clan and um and have this distinct memory of my dad essentially saying I don't remember exactly what he said but it was a boiled down to hell no and um and then they began to rock the car so hard that my mom thought we were going to die not by being shot but by being the the car just rocking so hard it felt like it was going to flip over and anyway I'm telling this story and these people who are you know essentially my age what the heck and and like what happened to this land of you know we are the world and everybody holding hands and and I guess it made me just begin to think more deeply about okay I in my mind had created this warm wonderful little town where I grew up which in many ways it truly was some of the kindest people you'd ever meet in your life and yet there was this active clan chapter on the back of the mountain and and just trying to put that together um without having to pay 180 dollars an hour for <laughs> for therapy um I just, you know, and so Blue Hole Back Home came out of that. I, it was first a short story that got published in my first book collection and and then it was later turned into a novel because some kind reviewer um, somewhere mentioned that in her review, like she didn't really turn this into a novel. And so, but I mean, that novel was total therapy because much of it is, is it's fictionalized, yeah. but it's one that was trying to put together this young woman from Sri Lanka moved to our little town and um she and I became friends and she was very dark skinned she was of Moorish descent um and so she was she was gorgeous and dark skinned and um the clan again reappeared and was awful to their family and they had a rock thrown through their plate glass window their living room window and they were threatened and it was horrible and um cross burned in their front yard and oh my gosh and before they that on their last day in town um she and I stood out front of her house and both of us crying and we were both about 16 and she said my father told me if we moved from Sri Lanka where we were persecuted um for being Muslim if we moved here this is the land of opportunity where everyone's welcome this is the end of the rainbow what happened like this is America I was told one thing about what this would be and what happened. And I remember just standing there crying at 16 and thinking, and I just, I think I began to talk. I have no idea what I said, but I could see on her face that it was completely inadequate. Yeah. Everything that I was saying I had no, and the truth was, I had no idea that this sweet little town that had always been so kind to me had been so horrible to her family. And um, so that's really where this book came from was, was just my trying to figure that out for myself. It was um, clearly I should have gotten therapy instead. Where, <laughs> many, many sessions. You know, did you, did you ever keep in touch with her? You know where she wound up? You know, I've tried to track her down for years. In fact, I had to, I used her real name in writing the book. And at the last minute I checked in with my editor and said, by the way, I'm using her real name. Is that okay? And he was like, no, that's not, okay. <laughs> not so a good idea. We had to, no, we had to find a, a, an appropriate name that had a, also a beautiful sound that, um, that was, you know, could be a Sri Lankan and, and a young woman who was Muslim and, um, but she, I've, every time I tell the story to book clubs, I've often used her real name and I've had several people who are into kind of like family searches and things like that help look for her. And we, I think we've gotten close. The last I heard her family, um, her family's last name was Hanifa. There were some Hanifas living outside DC and I tried to track down some of those to see if I should really try again, since the, of course the internet gets more, um, 
you know, you can do more with it every year. So I, I should right. try again, but I've tried many times over the years. I'd love to, I'd love to find her again. Which kind of brings us full circle because you could not do that in 1950 where a bend of light takes place. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, last question for you. Um, if you could, uh, you know, whisper some words of advice to your younger self, you know, maybe, you know, it's the, the, the young woman who is skipping school to read books. Um, what words of advice would you give her? Oh, I well, keep skipping school for one thing. <laughs> keep reading. Um, and then maybe don't build quite so many safety nets under yourself. You know, I did, as you read out this embarrassing long list of jobs I had held. Um, and I still tend to do that. I love teaching. So I tend to go back to teaching, but that does take time away from writing. But certainly my younger self, my young adult self did so many other things. And, and I, I don't really regret doing any of those because they enrich life. And I learned a lot, but I think part of that was just, Maybe I was scared to fail, that if I really tried hard as a writer, I'd have to face the fact that I might fail on the thing I cared about most or the professional thing I cared about most, that if I really, you know, if I really took away all the safety nets and just, just left, um, what, what if I failed at the, mm -hmm. at the dr big dream? And um, I, you know, that's a, that's a silly way to live. I, I guess I wish I'd taken writing more seriously earlier, which is easy to say because we all do need to pay bills, right? So. Well, I'd say the flip side of that though is, um, you know, working as a waitress, for example, you learn so much about the human condition um, and there's so much like fertile ground for stories. You know, you, you may have had so many seeds planted in your, in your mind, you know, back in through all those different jobs, um, yeah. you know, that, that only came to, to, to bloom, you know, later in life. And, and, you know, you use that as, as fodder for your, your creative writing, your novels, your storylines, your characters, you name it. Yes. I, you know, I think, I think you're right. And thank you. That is, that is encouraging to be absolved of, of all the, of all that. Right. And fortunately, you know, as you and I know, it is a career where you can at least ideally keep going for a long, long time. I, I Reese Bowen is a, is a writer who shares an editor with me and she's just, I love reading her work. And I think she's in her eighties maybe, and just going strong from what I hear. So anyway, that's, those kind of people are my heroes. I want to just keep, you know, keep trying to improve till I drop. That's so thank goodness. You know, I love not being like a figure skater or, a, you know, something where the career's done at about 16, right? right. Maybe, right. maybe 22. Yeah, maybe. Well, Joy, this has been a fun conversation. Um, I imagine some people listening to this may want to get in touch with you, follow you on social media. Um, do you have uh, any uh, social media handles you want to throw out there or a website? Sure. Uh, Joy Jordan Lake is Twitter and Instagram. I guess on Instagram, it's Joy Jordan Lake underscore books. Um, but I love to connect with readers and Joy Jordan Lake. I have an author page. And then my website is um, the woman who built it. It's really fun and interactive and lots of timelines and fun stuff. And, and that's just joyjordanlake.com. But thanks, Mike. This has been so much fun. Thanks so much for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, all the best with a bend of light. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.